This is a podcast by Wellhouse Church, where we talk about what it's like to be a Christian Monday through Saturday, to live as a person of faith in a culture against faith. Hey, 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 hey. What's up? How we doing? What's going on? Hey, hey, let's talk. Hey. So we're talking about sex still. Let's talk about sex. <laughs> what is that from? I, when I was editing it's a back. Song. Well, I know, but isn't it? Isn't that, wasn't that on a, uh, like a score? Like a film score? The Let's Talk About Sex, Baby. Wasn't that on a, wasn't that on a soundtrack? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was on uh, uh, Pitch Perfect. Oh, that's exactly where it was. Good good memory. Look at that. You're, mm. you're being paid for your musical talents and memory is, uh, is paying off. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. Um, Pretty sure that was on Pitch Perfect. That was a good movie. Yeah, that was a good. The Pitch second Perfect one is a good movie. The, the second one was okay, but the first one was like I don't know. I actually really enjoyed the first one. I don't remember the second one as much, but I do think the first one is pretty good. Yeah, yeah. The first one I always thought was pretty good. Um, but so we're gonna talk about things now other than Pitch Perfect. Uh, <laughs> Yes, we are. <laughs> you didn't. This is not a pitch perfect podcast. No. Um, but so okay, we started conversations last week about sex. We did, um, and the role of of faith in that. Um, but now, and we, we kind of briefly touched on it last week. But we're going to talk a little bit more about the image of God. Um, yeah, and what that looks like in sex, also with how sexual sin is kind of playing a weird role there as well. Um, well, I think, yeah. So what, what we're doing here is we're establishing the foundation that, that we are made as sexual creatures. Right. Absolutely. And, and with that being made as sexual creatures, being sexual is a part of being made in the image of God. Right. Now with that, as the story of the garden we looked at, right? Being made in the image of God is to be placed in our most perfect form of which sex is a part of. Right. But then we have the choice to continue in that path of living and fulfilling and receiving the fullness of our experience of being made in the image of God, or we can step outside of that. Right. And going into sin and so as sex is a part of being made in the image of God, there's something different about sexual sin than anything else. And, you know, we talk a lot about Wellhouse, or we talk at Wellhouse a lot about there being no hierarchy of sin. Right. I do, when I say there's no hierarchy of sin, what I mean is that there's grace for all sin and all sin is the same in God's eyes in that it's the same level of grace that covers the murder. murder as the liar. Right. But I will say throughout the biblical narrative, there does seem to be some difference in the sin that's committed against the image of God. Right. And so as we're going to see in just a minute, Sexual sin seems to 
be against the image of God, as does murder. If I kill you, I'm committing sin against the image of God. Right. Right. And so there's another level of provision for the sin that comes with committing sin against the image of God, as if I kill you. The unique piece about sexual sin is sexual sin seems to be the only thing that we can commit against ourself that's also against the image of God, minus suicide, which I think falls into its own unique category. Right. And so that's the piece that I would that I would want to point out is that sexual sin seems to be a sin against the image of God, further confirming our presupposition that we are made as sexual creatures and that our sexuality is uniquely tied to our being made in God's image. Right. Yeah, no, it's super interesting because um, we do talk a lot about this this idea that there is no sin hierarchy, but um, and there's not in, in this sense. It seems like there is different categories of sin right yeah that may be Um, a better way to talk about it is categories of sin not a hierarchy of sin meaning that the same grace covers all merits of sin yeah but sin falls into different categories of which grace can still cover right um so let's just think about it let's just set that as a standard right now for the rest of this series that when we talk about sexual sin we're not saying that it is worse than any other sin. Correct. Um, we are just saying it is a certain kind of sin in which we are sinning against our own bodies and therefore against the the image of God. Right, yeah. So in that way, it's unique. Right. But the same grace covers that as it does cover the liar, the thief, you know, any of the other sins that we would talk about. Yeah, for sure. And so I think... You know, sexual sin is hard, and if if we had more time, I would talk a whole lot more. I would I would work through the biblical narrative, specifically the Old Testament narrative, and all the sexual sin that's had through the Old Testament narrative. Yeah, and even more so, the sexual sin that's committed by people that are called fathers of the faith and those kinds of things. I mean, it's not lost on me that twice in the Genesis narrative, Abraham gives his wife over to be raped by the king's court. Right. Um, That's sexual sin on Abraham's part. Mm -hmm. He's the protector of his wife. And he gives her over to that. And yet he's the father of our faith. It's not lost on me that David rapes Bathsheba. Right. And once again, he's called a man after God's own heart. Um, it's not lost on me that the Israelite spies going into Cana at the beginning of Joshua happen upon Rahab's house, the prostitute, and that she recognizes them as Israelites, which we're told in Genesis 12 that circumcision is the sign of the covenant. Mm-hmm. How does she know they're Israelites? She saw their goods. Mm-hmm. The sexual sins of the Old Testament are not lost on and yet, even still, there's grace for that. Right. And so if we had more time, I would love to go and, and talk about that. But we don't. This no. is already going to be a very long series. Yeah. Um, 
and so we don't. But I think one of the best places that this is laid out is in 1 Corinthians 6. I think Paul does a really good job here. And in, in, in the whole first letter to the Corinthians, I think Paul does a really good job of talking about the nature of sex and things that can happen in sex. Um, and I say that because it, within the Corinthian correspondence, and, and I want to give that caveat. I know we're not on we're not on pints perspectives or a closer look, but for for the Bible nerds out there, I do understand that the Corinthian correspondence is greater than the two letters that we have. Right. These are only letters from Paul to them, but we also know from Paul's own writings in Second Corinthians and first Corinthians that there are letters that they've sent to him that we don't have. And there are also other letters that Paul has sent to them that we don't have. And so it's not all encompassing, but for what Corinth was a port city of great number, great wealth, lots of pagan influence. Sex was rampant in Corinth. Oh yeah. Very much so like it is in our society today. And I think social media has only made it worse. Oh, 100%. Um, I was talking to someone several years ago, and they had struggled with porn addiction for a very long time. And somehow it came up. I was I was talking with them and, and continuing their kind of formation and, and sanctification in this area. And this person just looked at me and goes, man, it's, it's not even about Pornhub anymore. Mm. Like I can find all my porn through Twitter. And I was like, Ooh, okay. And I didn't even know that existed. Um, and so I, I think there's much of what Corinth experienced is similar to what us now also give the caveat. I don't think Paul could have ever dreamed of what the internet and pornography and all these things could have done. I don't think Paul could have ever dreamed that that existed, but Paul talks in the Corinthian correspondence quite a bit about sex and sexual immorality. Yeah. Even down to calling out in, I think it's chapter five. Yeah. Chapter five. He calls out a man who is sleeping with his stepmother. Yeah. And he tells them, kick him out of the church. Like, get him out of here. Even the pagans don't do that. Right. Like, there seems to be something here where Paul is saying, hey, I, I understand we're trying to develop our religion here. We're trying to develop our expression. And, and we are a grace-filled expression. But, like, even the pagans don't tolerate that. Yeah. Like, that's uncalled for. That's not okay. And then in 2 Corinthians, he seems to have been restored back to the fold. So there's a lot going on here, but but in this, Paul seems to have this really detailed narrative about sex, sexual immorality, and the role it has against our being as humans. Right. This is in 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 12. Paul says, He's quoting, all things are lawful for me. Seems to be something that the Corinthians would say. Well, like all things are lawful because of grace. And Paul's response, but not all things are beneficial. Once again, they're saying all things are lawful for me. Paul says, 
but I will not be dominated by anything. It's like all things may be lawful, right? We're still working this out. We're not 100% sure. And so I'm quoting you saying, like, you're saying all things are lawful, and Paul's going, even if they are, they're not all beneficial. They're not all good, and I'm not going to be dominated by anything. I'm not going to be addicted to anything. And then verse 13, they're saying, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. But Paul says, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body's meant not for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So once again, we, we look at this and we go, oh, okay, we're made to be sexual creatures. So like, it's just cool to have sex however we choose to have sex. Well, no, 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 not exactly. There was an intent, a design, a plan for our sexuality that was tied to our body and our body is tied to the Lord. Right. And so there is a line, there is an expression, there is an experience of this that it needs to be done in the right manner. It needs to be done in the right order. He continues in verse 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ. So he'll detail this out in in later chapters, in, in chapter 12, that we're members of a body of Christ. That metaphor he carries. And so he, he introduces here, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? That when we become Christians, when we commit to living in the righteousness of Christ, that we become conformed, we, we become a part of his body. If you don't, if you don't understand this, in two days, an episode of Pints and Perspective is going to come out in which I talk with my mentor Ben Blackwell about the soteriology of deification, where we become conformed with the image of God. And I think that's what Paul's getting at here. Yeah, that that we are becoming Christ and oneness with Christ. And he says. Should I therefore take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Mm. Never, mm. never yeah. would we ever do that. Why? Because that's not justice. Yeah. It's not good. That's not wholesome. That's not how God designed our sexuality to work. Yeah. Our sexuality was designed and given by God, but with parameters. And prostitution, fornication, sleeping around, being loose with our sexuality was not it. Right. Just like God didn't call us to be loose with our sanctification or devotion to him, God didn't call us to be loose with our sexuality or expression of sexuality. Verse 16, do you not know that whoever is united to a prostitute becomes one with her mm-hmm. or one body with her? So once just in that in that phrasing, where does your mind go? Becoming one. Um, it it makes it takes me to uh, Christ in the church and the the oneness there. Um, interesting. Yeah, interesting. So I will tell you for Paul, that should take you to Genesis. Oh well, yeah, yeah. That they okay. become one flesh. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. That's remember, fine. Remember, we yeah. So I should have clarified that. We, we've read all of Paul, and right. Paul lots of times takes precedence over the biblical narrative, but when Paul's writing, he's going back in time. Right. Right, not to his own contemporary. I, I still think that all of that kind of connects oh, in this. Oh, it does. Yes, um, it absolutely so. does. But what I think Paul is doing here, 
and this is why I've chosen to do this, is he's going back to the beginning. Oh, yeah. That, yes, we're made as sexual creatures. Your sex, your sex drive is not the problem. Right. The way in which you go about fulfilling those needs is the problem. For sure. And so he says, do you not know that you become one flesh with the prostitute? For it is said, the two shall be one. Where has it said that? Genesis. Yeah. But anyone who unites to the who anyone united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. That's your part about being with Christ. Right. Paul gets very, very abrupt here. And he says, shun fornicators. Shun fornication. Get rid of sexual immorality. Like there is something different about sexual sin. I don't know why Paul feels so strongly about it. The only thing I can come up with is that it's uniquely sin against the image of God. And that's what Paul says here. Every sin that a person commits is outside the body. But the fornicator sins against the body itself. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So can we can we do something real quick? Sure. Can we break down that word fornicator? Ooh, um, I don't have my Greek Bible with me. Okay. Um, so I can't. Um, let me look it up here, and I'll, I'll try. Um, if I had my Greek Bible, it'd be really easy to break down the, the morphology. Right. But, um, I'm just, uh, you hear that word all the time. Yes. Right. And it's just kind of thrown around. And as we know, like historically speaking, um, we use words in ways that they weren't meant to be used. Um, and lots of times what we read here you know, um, isn't the really the best word to use there? Um, um, so I'm just kind of curious what's happening with that word. Okay, yeah, so I'm trying to look it up. Um, give me one second. Because that word fornicator, um, it's, it's feels extremely like harsh and off-putting and maybe it's supposed to be right with the way that Paul's talking there, but just need to figure out what that means. What to Paul is a fornicator. Okay. So the NRSV, which is the translation I was reading from translates it fornicator. The Greek word is actually pornea. Oh, Okay. Yeah, so it's the word where we get pornography. It's the word for sexual immorality. Um, yeah, it's it's meant to be a harsh word. Yeah, it's meant to be these people who engage in sexual immorality. Yeah. Um, get rid of them, shun them. You don't need them around. Yeah, apparently in other places... Um, and to all of my friends as myself who are given over to feminist theology, I don't like this. Mm. Uh, and I will say that, but once again, I have to be true to the text. In other places, pornea is trans- translated as whoredom. Mm. Mm. 
It's, I don't like that. But <laughs> I don't like it either, but it's, I mean, I can't deny it. Yeah. It is what it is. It's meant to be a harsh word that communicates. Sexual immorality. Well, communicates the direness of sexual immorality. Yeah. It's not even like, it's not even something that we can translate as like just the word for amoral right. within a sexual context. No, it's like, it's the thing that nobody wants to do. Yeah. Uh, man, that that's definitely, um, you know, if you watched a closer look yesterday, we, we talked um, a lot about uh, the parable of the sorting. Yep. Um, and the, the good and the bad. And man, that was tough. Um, and we're rolling right into this. And this is tough too. Because yeah. like, um, it's very clear that Paul is like, nope, sexual sin is something different. Um, yeah. And, but- and it needs to be treated in a different way as well, it seems. Yeah. Because you don't see him saying, like, get rid of the, the drunkards. Don't kick them out. Nope. Um, but he's very clearly saying, get rid of the people who engage in sexual immorality. Yeah, and I think something that I want to point out here is... I think for Paul, and this this is what I would say, and and I will also admit that there's a bit of speculation on my part here. Isn't it a testament to the goodness of sex that Paul would say we need to guard it at the level that we that he's asking us to guard it at? Yeah. For Paul, you know, you can look at any clinical study about sex and the way it affects our minds and emotions. Hello, sex, dopamine. <laughs> se- yeah, a lot of dopamine. Sex is something that we can easily become addicted to because it is so good. Yeah. But no matter what, you can look at any clinical study. Just go do a quick Google search. Clinically speaking, sex is never as good with anyone else as it is with your spouse. Because that's how God made it to be. Sex is always better with your spouse. Now, if you've never been married or never been in a wholesome marriage, you may not have a frame of reference of that. And so you can go and say, hey, I had sex with someone that I dated for a year and it's the best sex I ever had. Cool. But if you've never had, if you've never been in a life-giving Christ look-alike marriage in which you had good sex, you don't have the right frame of reference to say it's the best sex. Yeah. Because it's not. Clinically speaking, the best sex you can ever have is in a mutually respecting, sacrificial marriage. Mm. Because you care about the other one. You want the best for the other one. You want the other one to be fulfilled. And in that sacrificial, mutual respect, mutual giving, you each give the best of what you have for the other one sexually, at which point you become one flesh because you're willing to give of yourself and they're willing to give of themselves. And so when you meet together anatomically, 
you become one because you've both you're both willing to give. Yeah. And so I think what Paul was saying is yes, you are right that you are sexual creatures that that it haunts your very soul to have sex. But you also shouldn't step out of what God intended because what God intended is so much better than the momentary release you get from a prostitute or one night stand. Mm. That the sex with your spouse, the way that God intended it and bringing you together is so much greater than anything you can fabricate or create on your own.